You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. She would wake up before the sun rose. Rain, snow, storm, whatever didn't matter. She woke up for a singular purpose. To serve as many people as possible in her 1,350 square mile area. I'm TK, your guide to the past as we uncover the people, events, and little-known facts hidden in the shadows of your old history textbooks. From empress baddies to activist profiles, turkey gods and the history of the toothbrush, tattoos, Pompeii peepees, and everything in between, you can find it all here. There's no telling how far we'll dig or how many historical facts we'll re-examine. No event is too small and no topic is too big because this is for the love of history. Hello, 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 my friend. I am so glad you have found your way to For the Love of History today. I'm TK, your tour guide to the past, and we are here together in episode 34. What? Get out of town. 34. That's amazing. And this episode is extra special because it's like 20 years in the making. I first came across Suzanne LaFleche Picot when I was in the third grade, living in Omaha, Nebraska, where our story is based today, in fact. We had to make a presentation about famous people from Nebraska, and being the kind of child that I was, I needed to choose someone not on the list. I needed to be different. (laughs) And bless my teacher, she was like, all right, girl, If you can find somebody famous in Nebraska that is not on this list, go for it. So searching, I went with my dear mother in tow, and somehow I found Suzanne. I don't know exactly how it happened, but it did. And now, 20-ish years later, we are here with our big kid eyes and big kid brains, ready to retell the story of America's first licensed indigenous physician, Suzanne LaFleche Picot. So get comfy, get settled, you know the drill, and let's get to it. Some people, some very not cool people, say that Nebraska and most of the Midwest are flyover states. First of all, rude. Second of all, you're so, so wrong. First, We've got the Henry Dorley Zoo, one of the world's biggest zoos. We have the Old Market in downtown Omaha. We have the Strategic Air and Space Museum that I would go to as a kid, and it was great. We made Alka-Seltzer rockets. I loved it. And we also have Carhenge. Yes, Carhenge. It is a replica of Stonehenge made out of uh, poorly spray-painted cars. Yes, but most importantly, Nebraska is rich in indigenous history. There are 16 tribes that call Nebraska home. There are hundreds of indigenous historical sites and sacred lands. If you are a history lover, then Nebraska should be your next stop when all of this madness is over. Go to Nebraska. So if you, you know, you probably could tell that our story is based in Nebraska today. 
and it is mostly concerned with the Omaha or the Omaha, as they are called in their native language. Omaha means one who goes against the current. The Omaha tribe once lived in an area spanning from South Dakota to Nebraska and Iowa down into Kansas, so like a huge chunk of the Midwest. But due to a series of five treaties from 1815 until 1865, just about 90% of their land was taken from them because of these treaties. And this is the world in which Susan was born into. Suzanne LaFleche was born on June 19th 1865. Her father would end up being the last federally recognized chief of the Omaha tribe. Now the Omaha are an Indian Reorganization Act tribe, that's like the official title, with a constitution that was established in June of 1934. The Omaha tribe has a seven-member tribal council now, which governs their land, but back on track. So Suzanne's father, Joseph LaFleche, or Chief Iron Eye, was Ponca and French-Canadian. He was educated in St. Louis, Missouri, and could speak multiple languages. Suzanne's mother was Mary Gale, who had a white father, but was also of the Omaha, Otoe, and Iowa tribes. And she could understand English and French, but refused to speak anything other than Omaha, and identified exclusively as Omaha. As all parents pretty much do, Suzanne's would have a profound effect on her life and the trajectory of her career. For better or for worse, it's not my place to say, her father encouraged not only Susan, but her five siblings to strive for a certain level of assimilation, but also he really, really encouraged the Omaha people to also attain that certain level of assimilation. He promoted the Anglo-American style of living, including log cabins, Western dress, and Christian education. Initially, they refused to give Suzanne her, their youngest child an Omaha name, but eventually they did. However, they did strictly prohibit her from practicing certain ceremonies and getting Omaha tattoos. Susan had been interested in helping her people from an early age, but one moment in her life would really solidify her path. When Susan was quite young, she was tasked with staying at the bedside of an elderly Omaha woman who was very sick. The doctor for the area of that reservation had been called four fucking times but never came. And do you know why he never came? Because he had a very important turkey hunt the next day. I hope the turkey god smites you. I mean, he's dead, but I really, it would have been great if the Aztec turkey god, if you haven't listened to episode one of this podcast, you should. If the Aztec turkey god went and just like fucked him up a little bit, that would have been great. But that didn't happen. Unfortunately, instead, what happened was the doctor said, I'm not coming because it's only an Indian. And that lit a fire in Suzanne's belly. From that moment on, she knew what she wanted to do with the rest of her life. Suzanne knew she had to become a doctor because no one else was going to help her people. But this was going to be an uphill battle. Women had just barely been allowed to go to medical school. 
and indigenous women wouldn't even be considered U.S. citizens until, get this, 19 freaking 24, 1924. But Suzanne knew that she could do it. She was Omaha, after all, the people who go against the current. Did you know that in the 17th century, there was a game called Sparrow Mumbling, which involved holding a live sparrow in one's mouth? Or that in Welsh mythology, fairies rode corgis into battle? Or did you know that Europeans used to eat ground up mummies for medicine? Or that Colonel Sanders once shot a man? Oh, you knew all that? Well, I can see we've got our work cut out for us then. Why don't you come and hang out with wifey Lynette and wifey Jess for some bananas history? And who knows, maybe even the history of bananas. Sofa Spuds History, your new favorite podcast. Look for us wherever fine podcasts are found. Suzanne's education started early in a reservation school, but let's call a spade a spade. It was a U.S. assimilation school. But Susan learned how to read and write and do arithmetic. And when Susan was 14 years old, she boarded a train to New Jersey to continue her education. She knew the reservation school could only teach her so much, so she decided to go to Elizabeth Institute in New Jersey. And she studied there for about two years and graduated. She returned to her reservation and became a teacher, but soon returned to school after getting some money, and she attended Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute Trade School in Virginia, which is an amazing name. Normal and Agricultural Institute. Love it. This trade school was for black and indigenous Americans to study agriculture and various trades. Suzanne attended the school until 1886 when she graduated second in her class. She was one step closer to her dream. But women graduates of the Hampton Institute were really encouraged, if not pushed, Uh, to teach or return to their reservations or their hometowns and become good Christian wives and mothers, which there's nothing wrong with that, but that was not what Susan wanted with her life. She wanted to be a doctor. And one thing that I found, it was like, it pulled out my little heartstrings. She wrote a lot of letters back to uh, one of her sisters who still lived in Nebraska. And at the beginning of her time at the school in Virginia, she, Susan, would write these like gushing letters to her sister describing how much she had fallen in love with this Sue man who also attended this school. They were full on 1800s Dayton, friend. They were going to dances. They were taking walks. They weren't holding hands, but they were looking longingly into each other's eyes because we don't want any impropriety. But she broke it off with him in order to pursue her dream. And she decided to apply for medical school in 1886 after she graduated. In a letter, Suzanne said, ever since I was a small girl, I saw the need of my people for a good physician. I determined to make something useful of my life. 
and that's exactly what she did. There's one little problem, though. Medical school is hella expensive, and Susan didn't have that kind of money, so she sought out a scholarship of sorts and found one. A few years back, Suzanne had helped nurse Alice Fletcher, a family friend, back to health, following a flare-up of inflammatory rheumatitis. This family friend was an ethnographer from Massachusetts who had a broad network of contacts with women's reform organizations. Fletcher encouraged Suzanne to appeal to the Connecticut Indian Association, a local branch of the Women's National Indian Association. The WNIA's goal was to, brace yourselves for this, civilize the Indians by encouraging Victorian values of domesticity among Indian women. And they would sponsor field matrons whose task was to teach indigenous women cleanliness and godliness. So Susan wrote to them because, you know, you gotta get money because you gotta go to medical school because medical school is expensive. So Suzanne wrote them a letter, and in it she described her desire to become a physician and help her people cure their illnesses and teach them cleanliness, godliness, and all that other stuff. And the WNIA was like, yes, girl, we love this. And the association sponsored La Flesh's medical school expenses and also paid for her housing, her books, and other supplies, making Susan the first person to receive aid for professional education in the United States. The association also uh, made kind of a weird request that she remain single during her time at medical school and also for several years after her graduation in order to focus on her practice. Because mm, that's the only way you can focus being single. But whatever. She got the money. That was her goal. So Susan is accepted at the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania, WMCP, which was established in 1850 as one of the few medical schools on the East Coast for the education of women in medicine. And she kills it. She studies chemistry, anatomy, physiology, histology, pharmaceutical, pharma, oh my god, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical science, obstetrics, and general medicine. Whoa, oh, that was something. And like her peers, Suzanne did clinical work at facilities in Pennsylvania alongside students from other colleges, both male and female. But she was the only person there that wasn't white. All the while, while she's just crushing it at medical school, she's writing her family and friends back in Nebraska, giving them medical advice and trying to help them in any way she could. As soon as she was learning things, she was telling them to her family, really just putting her education to use as quickly as she could. So after studying all those things that I can't pronounce, Susan would graduate at the top of her class. She was valedictorian. So as soon as she graduated, Suzanne began working for the Office of Indian Affairs and served the Omaha and Winnebago tribes. I'm sure we all remember our first 
jobs, whether it was after university or right after high school or right after whatever, we all remember our first jobs. And it was a learning curve, right? It was a learning curve for me. But there was no time for learning curves for Suzanne. As soon as Suzanne started working for the Office of Indian Affairs, basically overnight at the age of 24 years old, she was responsible for 1,244 Omaha patients in a 1,350 square mile area. That's 3,496.484 kilometers for my friends that are not in America. This area was often covered in two feet of snow. Nebraska is lovely. I love it there. But it is so flat that any weather other than like lovely spring is amplified by a billion. You got a little summer heat wave in, in another state, bam, Nebraska. You can fry an egg on the concrete. It's a little windy, a whole ass tornado in Nebraska, light snow, a goddamn blizzard. Straight up freaking blizzard. So Suzanne was dealing with some shit as her first job, nonetheless. She would start at 5 a.m. and went to bed at 10.30. We know this from her many letters and diaries. She would work up to 75 recorded hours a week. And her bananas busy schedule wasn't the only thing that made this job hard. The Omaha people weren't just like, yes, Suzanne has come to help us. People were skeptical AF. And yeah, of course they would be. One of Suzanne's first patients was an eight-year-old boy, and she went to his house and diagnosed him. She gave his mother some medicine to give to her son, and she left. But she was riddled with anxiety as she rode her horse away from their house. She just kept thinking about if she properly diagnosed this boy. If she messed up this first case and something happened to him, no one would trust her. All her hard work would be for naught. So the next day, Suzanne rode out to check on the boy, and he was fine, all better, and playing in the river with his friend. Word got out that she could be trusted, and soon Omaha people were flocking to her. To continue strengthening the people's trust in Suzanne, she would mix traditional medicine with what she was taught in medical school. Suzanne became the modern medicine woman using white Western medical practices, but never at the expense of her people or her culture. In 1894, Suzanne met and became engaged to Harry Picot, a Sioux man from the Yankton Agency. Together, they moved to Bancroft, Nebraska, where Susan opened up a small private practice. She served Omaha and Winnebago and Sioux, as well as other indigenous tribes and white people in the area. She had a clinic with office hours, but Suzanne kept making her house calls, even keeping a lantern in her window at night so people could find her even when the clinic was closed. Suzanne said, My office hours are any and all hours of the day and night. 
And as if having your own clinic with thousands of patients and making house calls at all hours of the night and day wasn't enough to keep her busy, Suzanne also started a library for children, taught Sunday school, started a quilting circle for Omaha women, and translated documents for people on the reservation. And this list does not stop there. She also led public health campaigns against the flu and tuberculosis, creating instructional flyers on how to get rid of flies that carried these diseases and how drinking from a common cup was bad for your hygiene. She would make presentations and teach classes, and she wrote dozens of letters to the Indian Affairs Office, letters pleading for help. In one letter, she wrote about a time when she was not informed of a Dr. Shoemaker coming to give a lecture and treatment about tuberculosis. And in the letter to Cato Sells, the commissioner of the Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C., she described what she had to do given the lack of help and notice. She says, The weather was very cold, but I stood in the street for two hours telling everybody to come and we got 40 Indians and about the same number of white people. There is no reason why, with the facilities that your office has, that they could not be utilized for teaching all these people. The Indian Affairs Office had resources. They had funding, but they just didn't give a shit. In the same letter, she goes on to write, It is so terribly hard to see the people undergoing the hardships from civilization new to them. I believe a personal visit from you in the near future would be a great encouragement to them. A word from you would go a great ways, and I hope you will come. He never did. The Office of Indian Affairs was just corrupt, as all get out, and not only for medical treatment— Omaha people would sell their land and not get paid for it, or they would be forced to buy other land that they shouldn't have had to buy in the first place because it was really under their stewardship, but they would buy that land and they would never get it. They would never get the deed to the land. And in the 1910s, the U.S. government was taking and taking more land from the Omaha, and Suzanne became an outspoken critic of federal land allotment. But among all of these, one fight hit closest to home for her. Temperance, or the outlawing of alcohol. Alcohol ravaged indigenous communities all over the United States, and still does. Cheap alcohol vendors would strategically sell to indigenous communities, creating a hideous cycle of alcohol dependency and abuse. Suzanne's own husband would succumb to alcoholism in 1905. Henry died because of tuberculosis, but it was made much worse by the alcohol that he drank. She begged the U.S. government to stop allowing cheap whiskey peddlers to sell near the reservation and once again took to writing letters to the Indian Affairs Office, but to no avail. She also wrote articles in newspapers telling people what was going on and how they could stop her people and all indigenous peoples from suffering. But her pleas fell on deaf ears. At age 40, Suzanne's incredible work schedule was taking its toll. 
She was suffering through chronic illnesses and had lost hearing in one ear. But it wasn't all bad. In fact, in 1913, Suzanne's biggest dream came true. She opened the first privately funded hospital on a reservation in the U.S. in Walt Hill, Nebraska, a town situated on the Omaha Reservation in the northeastern portion of the state. It had modern equipment, an operating room, rooms for inpatients, offices, the best of everything. She had raised $9,000 in 1913, and that may not sound like enough money to uh, build a hospital, but $9,000 in 1913 is equivalent to about $237,800.82 today. She achieved the impossible. Not only did she become a licensed physician, but she had opened a fully functioning hospital for her people, run by her people. No more waiting for doctors who were too busy with their stupid freaking turkey hunts. No more traveling hours and hours to get to a hospital to maybe be served by a doctor. The hospital was in the town and for the people. Unfortunately, in 1915, bone cancer would claim her life at the age of 50. She only got to run her hospital for two years, but the hospital would stand and serve patients for 30 more years. Suzanne Lafleche Picot lived up to her people's namesake. She went against every single current that America threw at her. Suzanne said, I shall always fight good and hard, even if I have to fight alone. Alrighty, my friend, we have come to our final thought for today's episode, and it is lovely. Remember the hospital? Of course you do. It was like 30 seconds ago. We just talked about it. It served the community for 30 years until it shut down in 1944. It then became an elderly care facility through 1964. It was a private residence for a little while from 2000 to 2008, and... Uh, It was also an upholstery shop and a bakery. But back in the 1980s, it was purchased by a nonprofit organization. And until 2016, the first floor was the Suzanne LaFleche Museum. In 19... 19... Nope, not 19. In 2018, a Suzanne LaFleche Picot committee was formed. And I'm just going to read right off of their website for the next part. In 2018, the Omaha Tribe, in partnership with the Nebraska Commission on Indian Affairs, formed a Suzanne LaFleche Memorial Hospital Advisory Committee, comprised of tribal leaders, Dr. Picot descendants, community leaders, architects, museum professionals, and other stakeholders. A grant was received from the USDA Rural Development for the creation of a master plan which is being used on the basis of raising funds to transform the building into a center for the Walt Hill community. Work on the existing building will include restoration for the building's interior to accommodate anticipated usage as a medical clinic, historical museum, and for cultural educational spaces. This will also include development of the site for parking, 
outdoor activities such as an amphitheater, community gardens, and Native American features. Friend, this place is gonna be so freaking cool. It's gonna have a medical clinic. It's gonna have educational youth programming. It's gonna have a reading room. It's gonna have a community garden. It's gonna have social services and counseling for individuals and for family counseling. It's gonna have a sweat lodge. It'll have an entrepreneurial and technology center and it will have a Native American cultural space. What? It's gonna be so cool. Ground has already been broken at this location. Renovations are being done. I'm pretty sure they're in phase two of their three phase renovation or restoration whichever one you prefer. <laughs> and uh, if you want to know more about this amazing community center that is dedicated to the memory of Suzanne, you know I'm going to leave links to the website in the show notes. Suzanne helped her people survive one of the most trying times in Omaha history. And her legacy lives on in this facility and in the work of every Indigenous doctor today. That's it, my friend. That is all. I really hope my little third grade self uh, would be proud of this episode. Uh, And I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, leave a review or give a little five-star rating or send me a message on Instagram. Let me know what you think. I always love hearing from you. Your reviews and comments will be a welcome source of motivation as I move into my new house and transition into my new teaching a job at a new school. When this episode comes out, I will be frantically doing all the last minute packing before the moving company comes the next day. So with that, I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Do something that makes you happy. Drink your water and I will see you on Friday, March 19th when we talk about poetess Sappho who fell in love with Aphrodite. Bye! Why is there a metronome right now? Okay. <laughs>